Welcome to today's episode of the PQI podcast. Today I talk with Dr. Santa Maria from Johns Hopkins. Dr. Santa Maria works as both a primary oncologist and consultant for patients with all types and stages of breast cancer. His research interest is in developing new types of treatment for patients with breast cancer using immunotherapy. Today we discuss his current and past research in breast cancer, including studies on immunotherapy and breast cancer treatment, and on survivorship. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Santa Maria. Um, To start, will you please introduce yourself and tell our audience a little about your background? Sure. No, uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, Delighted to to be here with you today. So my name is Cesar Santa Maria. I'm an assistant professor of oncology at John Hopkins Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center. I specialize uh, in breast cancer, uh, both uh, clinically and also from a research perspective. Um, I, I spent my time uh, uh, a combination of doing both um, research and taking care of patients clinically. Um, in terms of my clinical practice, I, I focus again on all subtypes of breast cancer, different stages. And from a research perspective, um, I, I'm very interested in many aspects of breast cancer research, but in particular, my area of uh, research focus is in breast cancer immunotherapy, so uh, developing uh, new treatments using uh, novel immunotherapy combinations, um, uh, understanding uh, the, the biology um, of how uh, cancers in the immune system can interact uh, with the aims of um, understanding who may respond better to immunotherapy or how better to combine um, immunotherapy drugs. Okay, that is awesome. I've read a little about your research um, in immuno- immunotherapy. Can you tell us a little more about the current research that you have going on? Absolutely. So broadly speaking, I think to, to move forward with uh, immunotherapy and, and breast cancer, there's a couple of key strategies. Um, one is to identify responders to immunotherapy. So um, developing biomarkers or, you know, uh, uh, whether they be tissue-based or blood-based biomarkers that uh, tell us these patients are more likely to benefit from immunotherapy. Um, and then the other part of it uh, is uh, developing better combinations for those patients who don't respond, which unfortunately is the majority of patients with breast cancer. And I guess before I get into too much detail, um, you know, there are many forms of immunotherapy. Immunotherapy is a very much a, a, a basket term that basically refers to uh, treatments that um, harness your immune system to fight cancer. Uh, that's what cancer immunotherapy is, is referring to. Um, the most common immunotherapy drugs right now are, are what we call the immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, of, of those, um, PD-1 programmed uh, cell death uh, one and its ligand inhibitors, so PD-1, PD-L1 inhibitors are, are going to be the most commonly investigated currently. In breast cancer, there are a few indications for the use of these uh, inhibitors. Um, but there are also other forms of immunotherapy, which I won't be touching uh, on today, but are, are still very important. Things like vaccines, um, things like cell-based therapy, adoptive T cell transfer therapy, CAR T cells, for example. Yes. Um, and um, again, very important parts of immunotherapy research, but um, 
what's uh, uh, the most accessible ones certainly are uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitors, and that's where most of my research uh, focuses on. So, in terms of finding better um, biomarkers to identify um, uh, responders to immunotherapy, there is one study that uh, I was hoping to to highlight: uh, the the Prism study, okay. um, which is a study looking at um, patients who have spliceosome mutations. So um, spliceosomes, as, as a quick uh, reminder from Biology 101, are the cellular machinery uh, involved in, in processing RNA. And um, as such, um, you know, they're involved in the kind of proteins that are produced in the cell. And you know, proteins can, uh, can be antigenic. The immune system can detect proteins, specifically abnormal proteins. So patients with spliceosome mutations um, can uh, have abnormal RNA transcripts, mRNA transcripts, which can result in abnormal protein production and possibly um, diversify the new antigen landscape. Um, a, a similar approach has uh, been used to develop other sorts of biomarkers like tumor mutation burden or mac microsatellite stability. These are genetic markers that result in very um, diverse uh, neoantigen uh, landscapes, and you know, those are targets for immune cells. So the more diverse uh, a neoantigen landscape you have, the more likely we can hear to respond to immunotherapy. So this okay. particular study is looking at spliceosome mutations. These are actually rare mutations in breast cancer, maybe occurring up to 4% of breast cancer cases. You can see them, you can find them on commercial uh, genetic testing. Um, Foundation, Tempest, Keras are, are common um, uh, platforms that are commercially available. Yeah. And if, if you have this mutation and you have metastatic breast cancer of, of any subtype, we're actually going to be opening up the study to all solid tumors shortly, actually. But oh, wow. um, yeah, uh, because we do think that this is not uh, just unique to, to breast cancer, but um, you know, uh, these mutations can uh, result in more neoantigens and basically any cancer. So um, what happens is patients will log on to a website, which um, we can provide the link on the study notes, the, the, the show notes. That would be great. Um, and uh, what they do is really simple. You put in just some basic demographic information, you upload your uh, genetic report, and then that'll come to us and we'll review to make sure that you actually do have the mutation that we're interested in. And if you do, we'll call you to do a formal consent process, okay? Um, and we'll collect your medical records after we have your consent. We'll present it at our at molecular tumor board, which is a, a board of uh, specialists, uh, oncologists, geneticists, pathologists, uh, disease-specific experts. So uh, they'll review your case and they will give a recommendation to give immunotherapy or not. Since immunotherapy is commercially available, this would be an off-label use. And you can use uh, the molecular tumor board report will give it to you and your uh, treating physician, and you can use that to try and obtain off-label uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor, either a PD-1 or PD-01 inhibitor. There's, there's various on the market. Um, and then all we do is we just follow you remotely. Uh, by wow. questionnaires. Yeah, so it's what we call a virtual clinical trial. Really, there's no part where you have to come into our cancer center. Um, you can certainly be in our cancer center and enroll in this study, but you can be in, 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 uh, 
you know, California or, uh, you know, um, Texas, Florida, wherever. Uh, you can do this study anywhere in the mainland U.S. It's open only in the U.S. But, um, that so, is great. Yeah. What an amazing opportunity for patients. So as a patient, I would just need to log on um, to the link that you give and turn in like my foundation report or, or whatever I may have and then work with my physician and you all, um, and I could get the same, the same therapy and have be followed by you all, but be followed here in Florida. So exactly, exactly. So kind of, you know, uh, it, it really allows us to, um, have a, a very large encatchment area. So, you know, uh, many, many parts of the U S unfortunately are, are really underserved from clinical trials, you know, um, only a small, um, uh, percentage of patients with cancer uh, go to centers that have clinical trials available. And, you know, I really think clinical trials are part of modern oncology care. You know, this is how we move the field forward. So, um, you know, I, I do think an important aspect of this is to be able to, to serve a broader community and uh, be able to have um, quality trials um, available uh, to them as well. Yes, that's amazing. And I think that's one thing our, our audience is a lot of pharmacists, oncology pharmacists. That's something that even the pharmacist could advocate or help the patient with. So I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. And have you had success um, with insurances or you may not have opened the trial yet covering no. it or... Yeah, no, the study uh, uh, is open, and um, you know I, I can highlight one particular case we had um, where actually the immunotherapy was initially declined, but with the molecular tumor board report um, that helped um, get it covered. So um, the patient was able to to, to get the immunotherapy drug um, because of this molecular tumor board report that's uh, generated as part of the study. Okay, awesome. Do you have other research in immunotherapy going on as well, or is that the main trial right now? Well, I would say that's the main trial that would be accessible to uh, a broad audience, yeah. um, you know, irrespective of where you are in the mainland U.S. But um, certainly there are, are many other studies that we're looking at. So, you know, I talked about the, the, the two ways forward are one, identifying patients who are more likely to respond. So the PRISM trial is an example of that. We're trying to look for patients with a very specific biomarker, um, these spliceosome mutations, specifically the SF3B1. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, seeing if, if that uh, uh, population of patients, that very select population of patients responds better to immunotherapy. The other broad category, I think, of uh, moving forward with immunotherapy and breast cancer is through novel combinations based on robust science um, that um, helps guide um, how we think about combining immunotherapy drugs with, with other drugs. Um, and we do have a, a couple of, of studies, one that's currently open, um, that's leveraging uh, CDK4-6 inhibitors. Okay. So, you know, I'm sure uh, as an oncology pharmacy uh, uh, Audience, um, you're very familiar with these drugs. These are pretty much standard of care drugs for patients with metastatic ear positive breast cancer. You know, abemocycle, one of the drugs is now, um, there's data showing that there may be benefit in early stage breast cancer as well. Um, you know, certainly in the metastatic setting, you know, the, the, the benefits are certainly very uh, significant. 
And, you know, if you look at the way these drugs work, you know, we think of them as, you know, endocrine therapy boosters, right? Um, CDK4-6 is in part regulated by the estrogen receptor. And when you combine it with anti-hormone therapy, there's this synergy that you see in terms of anti-cancer effects. But more recently, there's been uh, studies that have uh, found that CDK4-6 inhibitors also modulate the tumor microenvironment. And they do so in a, in a variety of different ways. Um, and there's actually both preclinical and clinical data for this. You know, uh, basically, uh, we see that CDK4-6 inhibitors can upregulate antigen-presenting machinery. Um, so, you know, when um, these proteins, the antigens that a, a cancer cell may have, are, uh, are are in the cell, the way they um, the way they present the um, the specific uh, antigen or, or peptides to the immune system is, is really critical. And, and um, CDK4-6 inhibitors are, uh, have been found to in, uh, upregulate antigen uh, presentation machinery. Um, it it uh, is associated with uh, PD-L1, uh, the PD-L1 uh, receptor ligand as well. Okay. And um, in patients treated with CDK4-6 inhibitors, we do see, in fact, this uh, kind of inflammatory signature that gets upregulated. So all those are little hints suggesting us, suggesting to us that, um, you know, CDK4-6 inhibitors are affecting the tumor microenvironment in a way that may potentially uh, improve responses to immunotherapy. So oh, wow. we have a study open looking at that, the ImmunoAdapt study. Um, we, we could also have a, a link to that uh, in the um, show notes as well. Oh, great, yeah. Yep, um, there's, it, you know, there's NCT uh, designation for that. Um, all, all these trials I'm talking about are available on clinicaltrials.gov, of course. Okay, um, thank you. And um, this is a neoadjuvant study, so a preoperative study for patients with ER-positive breast cancer prior to surgery. And basically, um, it's looking at the addition of a CDK4-6 inhibitor. In this case, it's looking at pavocyclib um, in combination with endocrine therapy and the PD-L1 inhibitor of Elumab. So um, the, the uh, patients uh, are, are randomized to either get uh, endocrine therapy with the Avelumab, with or without the pavocyclib. And they're treated for a total of four months. Um, the goal is to try and shrink the tumor down as much as possible prior to surgery. And as, as part of this study, not only are we interested in looking at response rates, but uh, we have uh, biopsies at different time points that will help tell us how the tumor microenvironment changes as you add these different therapies. And um, is there um, a particular um, a, a signature we can find that may be predictive of response. And importantly, in, uh, um, in any residual disease that's left, we can look at possible resistant pathways to help inform the next generation of studies as well. Okay, so so interesting, the things that are coming, coming every day. I feel like there's a new indication or a new study with immunotherapy. Um, so it's very interesting work that you're doing. Um, and I know that in the past, um, you've also authored some articles on breast cancer patients and survivorship. Um, I know one was the POWER remote trial. So can you tell us a little more about that research um, and what it involved? Yeah, absolutely. So the POWER remote study was also a study in patients with early stage uh, breast cancer. 
and um, basically randomized uh, patients to a, a remote supported uh, weight loss intervention study over a year um, to basically a control arm of just self-directed um, weight loss, which would be more in line with what the current standard is. So um, the study found that uh, patients who um, uh, were on the, the weight loss intervention um, lost a considerable amount more weight. Um, and uh, the, the unique aspect of, of this particular intervention is, is that it's remote supported, meaning you, you don't need to come in um, okay. you know, for any sessions. Um, you know, there's no um, in-person component to it. So it's something that's potentially scalable. Yeah. Um, and we've we've used these uh, this study um, as 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 a backbone to some of our current studies. So you know that's an example of a study we had open quite some time ago, and now we're we're building on that. We have currently a study um, that's uh, being run by a colleague of mine, Dr. Jenny Cheng, um, called the a new study, and uh, we we may have a link for that as well, possibly. Um, okay. In the show notes, um, and uh, it's using that remote support intervention now and adding a, a weight loss agent, a, a drug that uh, uh, promotes um, weight loss. So, um, you know, kind of building on the, the success of the previous study and, and hopefully trying to, to improve it uh, forward. And did you find a specific outcomes with weight loss or things that were positive for patients? Um, if they, if they did have the weight loss? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I guess I would say the, the, the reassuring thing we saw about the study was that we saw weight loss across all groups of patients. So across patients who had had chemotherapy, you know, and chemotherapy, you know, is known to slow down your metabolism. Um, so, you know, uh, weight, weight gain is actually a, a common problem in patients who have chemotherapy just because of its effects on your resting metabolic rate. Um, so we saw weight loss in them, and, and then also, um, even though the anti-hormone treatments, endocrine therapies, um, you know, in randomized studies have not necessarily been shown to increase weight, I think clinically, a lot of clinicians can um, attest that it's probably one of the most common symptoms that patients will, will note when they're being treated with anti-hormone therapy. And uh, in this study, we did see that patients with um, anti-hormone uh, uh, who are on anti-hormone therapy did, were able to achieve weight loss. So, you know, it, it, it was able to help a, a broad group of patients. You know, um, it, the, the study itself was not power to look at uh, uh, disease outcomes like burn rates okay. and whatnot, but that is an important part of this. You know, maintaining an, a healthy and ideal body weight is thought to improve overall outcomes from a breast cancer perspective. There's actually confirmatory studies that um, just finished occurring, uh, the, the Be Well study, an NCI-funded study that's looking specifically at that question. Um, but we did see that um, there, uh, we looked at different markers in patients who lost weight, and the one we, marker we saw improve substantially was leptin. Um, leptin, as we know, is, is a molecule that's um, involved in obesity and also has lots of oncogenic effects. So we saw uh, improvements in uh, decreases in, in leptin, which you know, biologically suggests there was a helpful um, effect of the weight loss. So. That's great. 
And to go along with that, I know survivorship, I feel like is still a topic that's not discussed enough as a medical community um, or with patients directly. I, I was a patient in, in my 20s for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and I don't feel like survivorship has ever really been discussed with me. Um, so what do you think the multidisciplinary team can do to help um, with educating more on survivorship? or issues? And do you have any recommendations and resources for patients who are transitioning from treatment to survivorship? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think survivorship is really a, a, a cornerstone of, of what we do because we are able to cure lots of patients with breast cancer. And um, unfortunately, a lot of the therapies we, we prescribe can be long-term therapies, which can certainly yeah. affect quality of life and many aspects of, of life. So you know, um, I think uh, there's uh, a few things to consider, you know, um, definitely working closely with your medical oncologist to address um, any symptoms that occur, uh, but then also integrating with your primary care doctor and making sure that the, the connection between, the transition between oncology and primary care is, is very well defined is, I think, really important as well, um, you know, in terms of um, uh, checking um, uh, uh, labs, um, you know, like vitamin D, for example, um, a lot of the therapies um, we give like aromatase inhibitors, you know, can affect bone marrow density and uh, typically calcium and vitamin D are recommended, but, um, you know, you want to make sure you're not vitamin D deficient. Um, you know, um, uh, aromatase inhibitors, again, not, 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 not to pick up this class of endocrine therapy, but, you know, can also uh, affect uh, lipids, you know, uh, so, you know, making sure your lipid profiles are checked is really important. Um, and, and, you know, there's, again, various important aspects um, uh, uh, medically that, that need to be addressed. I think a great resource um, for, for patients and obviously for physicians as well as the NCCN, um, and certainly um, there can be a link provided for that, um, that um, has both... Um, you know, workflows for physicians, but also for patients. They have patient um, handouts as well that kind of go over some of these um, issues related to breast cancer and breast cancer survivorship um, in particular. Okay, thank you. And I have a couple more questions for you that we ask um, every podcast guest, but if you have any other um, research or anything else you would like to add before I move on to those, please, please let me know. It's been so interesting so far. Yeah, no, absolutely. I guess, you know, what I would just say regarding uh, research, just reiterate, you know, I, I really do think this is uh, an important part of modern oncology care. Um, you know, I, I definitely encourage you to talk to your oncologist to see if a research study is appropriate for you. Um, and, um, you know, if, if, if there is, um, you know, many times they can help connect you with, with the right uh, resources to, to consider that. Absolutely. Yes. And I think it's wonderful that it's opening up um, virtually too. So that may open a whole new world for patients. Um, so now for the, for the two questions, um, I know that you participated with us and thank you and the PQI in action um, article but ENCODA produces the positive quality intervention resource. So that um, couple page document on various therapies and um, kind of a summary of how to manage them. So do you see value in this and, and what value, I guess, do you see for the oncology team? 
Yeah, I, I, I did see those uh, uh, PDFs put together. I, I think that's fantastic. You know, I think it's it really is a very clear cut and concise summary of the most important aspects of these different treatments. Um, and, um, you know, I, I do think that can be helpful um, for the physicians and uh, in this, uh, to, to use this information to um, have discussions with, with patients. You know, um, I think many times, you know, um, there is, um, I'd say almost a lack of transparency, I think, you know, uh, in, in what we do, because as physicians, we know that the background information and we put forth our recommendations, but I, I really think it's important as uh, physicians and oncologists certainly to to educate rather than to dictate is what I tell my patients, um, you know, and really a, a shared decision model, I think is, is what um, it, we're really moving towards. Um, and I think that's uh, helpful for patient care and, and, and these pamphlets certainly, um, I think can help facilitate that. Thank you. And then last question, um, the world is, it appears to be opening up some, so hopefully we can all soon freely travel. So is there a place that you would like to travel and why? <laughs> travel anywhere at this point. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I'm definitely looking forward to being able to, to travel freely again. I think my my first stop has got to be uh, Greece. Uh, yeah. We have a family there and um, uh, I really enjoy uh, visiting as, as often as we can. Kids love it. We love it. And uh so it's a great uh, vacation spot for us. Oh, that's wonderful. That sounds great. I hope you get there soon. Um, that's a place I've always wanted to visit and I haven't made it yet. So it, it always looks gorgeous and I, I have to go try the food. So absolutely food beaches. It's, it's really beautiful. What, what, what could be bad? <laughs> But so thank you so much, Dr. Santa Maria. You have been a fabulous guest today and we really appreciate you um, being a guest on the ENCODA podcast. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Santa Maria. The links to the studies that Dr. Santa Maria shared can be found in our show notes. To download this podcast, you can search the PQI podcast on Spotify and Apple and remember to subscribe. You can listen on our website at encoda.org. That's N-C-O-D-A dot org. You can also follow us on Instagram at the PQI podcast. We would also like to thank Encoda for making this podcast possible. And we hope you join us next week for another edition of the PQI podcast. Thanks, everybody.